Welcome to the Insider's Edge podcast here on the WCWA Network. I'm your host with the most on the West Coast, California Inferior. It's a joy to be with you all once again. And speaking of a joy, right here, right now, I get the chance to talk to a former world champion, a Hall of Fame, and not only in wrestling, but in life itself. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the one, the only, the incomparable, the living legend, Larry Zabisco. How are you, Larry? Well, Carl, thank you. It was a hell of an intro, and and uh, brother, I'm doing good. I can't complain. Um, I don't do too much, but I'm busy enough. I got a lot of podcasts, and once in a while, I fly out and do an autograph signing, and I like to meet the fans and that. But and then slowing down, trying to enjoy the golden years <laughs> I have left. And I tell you, Carl, I've been so lucky in terms of I don't need no artificial parts, I don't need surgeries, the health is good. I never drank my whole adult life either. I got into drugs or roids, and and I've seen a lot of guys younger than me, you know, leave the planet already. It's too bad. But uh, I've been lucky, and I'm not doing anything to hurt myself. (laughs) (laughs) That's good to hear, Larry. You still playing a bit of golf these days? You know, a little bit. And man, I'm in Florida, so right now it's like 90 some, you know, degrees. In the summer, I really don't play. It's just too damn hot. But like, <laughs> uh, you get a good, you know, seven, seven good months of golf in here when it's beautiful weather and not too hot. And so I still putz around a little bit, but sometimes I, you know, I, I will confess, I moved from the tips to the men's tee. <laughs> which ticks me off. The game ain't what it used to be, but I'm still pretty good. <laughs> Excellent to hear, Larry. I'm going to be talking a little bit about golf later on in this interview. Um, but the first thing I wanted to talk to you about was like, uh, as far as like my perspective is on on how I came to know who you were, uh, because I became a wrestling fan, you know, in the between the mid to late 90s. So when I first, when you first came onto my radar, it was when you were obviously doing commentary, uh, broadcasting on WCW Monday Nitro. So this was something that I wanted to ask you about uh, um, because I know that when I would watch this back then, I would have been 10, 11 years old. I'm still figuring out who each person is and 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 who they're all about mm-hmm. and what they're all about, sorry. Um, so I know that Larry Zabisco is a commentator, but he used to be a wrestler or he used to be a full-time wrestler and sometimes he still wrestles. That's what I kind of gathered. But one thing I always found interesting was whenever there was the tight shot of the commentary team at the beginning of the show, hyping up the show, the angles going on. Um, how long did it take you to decide to put the headset down and go show the love to the fans that would start chanting your name whilst Tony's trying to talk? Well, you know what? I mean, I couldn't help it because, I mean... I was kind of responsible for the New World Order, the naming of it and the beginning of it, and it got hot. And I'm one of the guys from WCW that was first to stand up against what I saw. And the people bought it. And I don't know why, but they just started chanting, Larry, Larry. And I couldn't ignore them because, the, you know, I mean, 
the fans were showing their love and I couldn't help it. So I got up and gave them the big L and they popped. <laughs> and and it was funny because back in those days, some of our so-called good guys were running around the back and they were, they were complaining to the upper echelon. They're going, what's going on here? The broadcaster's more popular than I am. <laughs> you know. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it, it, it was great. And I never even planned on being a broadcaster. That's a whole other story. Right. So it's just an organic thing. You just, it kept on happening. So one day you just got out of your seat and you decide to give them uh, a little bit of love. So that's Yeah. Cool. And then once you do it, then it caught on it in every <laughs> show. The fans were into it. So I had, I had to do it. <laughs> Excellent. Um, one person who I, I, I would consider I've become a friend with uh, is Scott Hudson. Uh, because uh, many moons ago, before I even started the podcast, I contacted Scott on Facebook and just asked him if I could talk to him on the phone one night and ask him all these really nerdy questions about his job. <laughs> and we talked for like four hours, and that's the reason why I ended up starting to do this, because he told me, Carl, your, your knowledge is really good. I think you would be really good doing podcasting. So I talked to him a lot about you, and I've interviewed him on the show. Uh, and your time on WCW Saturday night commentating with Scott Hudson is one of my favorite things because there are so many hidden gems on those episodes of you both just being hilarious, bouncing off one another really well. How did you like working with Scott? And what was the process like to record commentary for a show like WCW Saturday night in 1999? Well, Scott was a great guy and he was easy to, to, to work with. He was a good talker. And I hate to blow smoke up my butt, but I always had the natural gift of gab. I mean, during my wrestling career, when people loved, I mean, hated me and then loved me was because one of the important things was the interviews. If you could talk good and reach people emotionally, you got them. They either loved you or they thought you were the biggest creep a-hole in the world. <laughs> And I had people believing that in real life, forget the wrestling, in real life, I was the biggest a-hole alive. <laughs> but then at the end of my career, I kind of got older and grew into the living legend role and went against the New World Order. And then people loved me, but it was still that gift of gab. And Scott, you know, it really uh, was easy to work with. He loved it. And he had, a, he had a real job, too. You know what he was? Yeah, he worked he out in the FBI. <laughs> Yeah, he was a federal investigator. So, uh, you know, so he had an important you know, job, but he was a, a great guy to work with. Yeah, I, I just, I really love the duo between you two. And, and I'm going to continue asking you about the commentary because uh, I'm really intrigued to hear about your thoughts on a particular episode of WCW Thunder where it was yourself and Mike Tanay and you were randomly joined by Kevin Nash on commentary on his last day uh, as Booker for WCW. Uh, there is a compilation of it on YouTube where Kevin is the whole episode making inside references, just, just you know, breaking kayfabe. <laughs> I believe he's also <laughs> drinking on the air with you. Uh, and he's trying to get you to get involved as well. And you start to get in on the jokes as well. Uh, what are your memories of, of, of this? Do you have any memories of Kevin Nash and, and, and yourself and Mike Tanay on Thunder? You know, to be honest with you, I'm thinking, and people ask me questions. And I mean, you know, like 
God, how long have I been 40 years in the business? I've done so much stuff that I don't remember certain things that the fans remember. The only thing I remember about doing Thunder was it was at towards the end of WCW. Yeah. And not to get into too much personal crap, but what happened before that was WCW, you know, Ted Turner sold out to AOL Time Warner. And you can hear him on the news six months ago, he was complaining how you know, much he hated what they did to CNN, his baby, you know. But WCW was already canceled, but they still went another year because they had contracts with cable companies and pay-per-view companies and TV you know, stations. So things really kind of disintegrated and WCW had kind of a slow, cruel death. I mean, I, I went from Nitro to Thunder because the people running WCW now, instead of the golden years through the 90s, basically, where Turner was giving money away like candy, you know, now their job was to spend as little as possible because the show was going to be canceled soon. Time Warner didn't want the Braves. They didn't want the basketball. They didn't want you know the football. They didn't want wrestling. They didn't want sports. They just wanted to screw up the news station. So I was moved to Thunder, and I wasn't happy about it because I saw and knew what was going on behind the scenes, and it was in complete disagreement with the upper echelon at that time, but I knew what they were doing. It was, it was kind of sad. Mike Tenay was very good. He was a great guy and a good talker. And he always knew these facts. We called him the professor. <laughs> but, but I'm trying to remember of all the shows I did, you know, 10 years of broadcasting, I really don't remember doing one with Kevin Nash, to be honest with you. Right, I okay. I don't even know if Kevin was a drinker. <laughs> I mean, I really don't know. To be honest uh, uh, with you, dead senior moment. <laughs> That's okay, Larry. Uh, after we finish the interview, I will send you uh, through an email. I'll send you a link to the YouTube video because there's a compilation of yourself, Mike, and Kevin on commentary for this episode of Thunder. And it's I hilarious. Believe you, I, I believe you. I just can't. You know, remember okay. about somebody we did? I just can't remember that. <laughs> sure, it was Kevin Nash. It was Kevin Nash. Yes, he was. Uh, okay. He was winding you and Mike up the whole time, and he he kept on going on about it because uh, Mike Tanay had mentioned uh, that uh, uh, Jim Duggan's knee drop was called Old Glory, and uh, Kevin Nash would not stop referencing the Old Glory knee drop for the whole episode. It's, I'll send you the link after the interview, but uh, <laughs> we'll continue on, Larry. All right, I'll take it out and see if I remember in the dead brain cells. <laughs> no problem. Uh, so when I interviewed Scott Hudson, I asked him about one of my favourite moments in WCW history, and it involved hole-in-one Barry Darso on WCW Saturday night. Uh, you and Scott were commentating this particular segment on the show. He was to wrestle Lodi in a singles match. And before the match began, he threw a golf ball at Lodi's head. And Scott <laughs> told me that you were crying with laughter over it. Do you remember this? Do you remember this particular moment in history? Let me think. Did the golf ball bounce off Lodi's head? <laughs> yeah. 
You know, I, I think I vaguely remember, some, I mean, I'm talking vaguely, vaguely, but I seem to remember vaguely a golf ball bouncing off a of Lodi's head now that you said that. But you got me kind of, I mean, <laughs> I think I remember that because it was such a funny sight, you know, a golf ball flying and bouncing off someone's head. God, it was so much happening in those years, you know, it's hard to... <laughs> I never thought of throwing a golf ball at anybody. <laughs> I thought you'd enjoy that because obviously you, you're quite yeah. into your golf and uh, Barry Darso, that character was quite entertaining as well. Um, uh, so uh, Ellie, <laughs> you, you had mentioned that you had a bit uh, of uh, influence in, in, in some of the ideas that came about for the NWO. Uh, I know you've probably been asked this before, but again, uh, if you could just start, let me know. What kind of things were you involved with when it came to the NWA? Well, when I first found out what was going to happen, you know, I was kind of involved and in, I knew Eric Bischoff, me and Eric were close from the AWA where he first started. In fact, I was a private pilot. I used to fly around all over the country instead of driving my butt off. And I took Eric with me a few times and other people. And then Eric got into flying and got him some private pilot's license. And then he wound up in WCW. And I mean, Eric was a smart guy and a good hustler, good sales guy and sold himself to the TBS people. But in all fairness too, he was like a salesman when he first showed up at the AWA and wasn't an old school professional wrestler who knew the, the psychology and, and that, but he was a smart guy. And then when I heard about, wait, well, you know, who's coming in? Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, what? And I heard the ideas that some people had, but they weren't good ideas. I mean, I mean, what I was looking at was going, oh my God, I mean, we can make this the biggest thing in wrestling. We, we can make it look like the WWE is invading WCW. So I programmed things to make it look like that. You know, how Scott Hall first appeared, he walked down through the crowd, got in a ring during a match when a match was going on. People start freaking out, going, what the hell's he doing here? He's the WWE guy, well, what's, you know, and I, I programmed it. And even Eric said it, because he had an idea and some other ones, but it, when I laid everything out, Eric went, damn it, that makes me mad. Your idea is great, my better than mine, you know, but, but he was smart enough to listen. And then other guys, I mean, Scott listened, Ash listened, what, the way it started. And when you do something, you know, in wrestling, every different audience now, but yeah, we, we, we do angles, angles to get the fans excited so they couldn't help, they had to watch the pay-per-view. And if you do an angle and start it off the right way, you'll get the biggest benefit out of it you can. If you don't do it right, you'll get a so-so benefit and, you know, it won't be as good as it could be. But uh, by that time, you know, I, I had so much knowledge because I was one, one of the last guys raised by the old school, the Brunos and the Strongbows and the Monsoons. And it was really a, an era where... There was no contracts. There was no big companies paying for everything. If, if you didn't sell a ticket, you didn't eat. 
I mean, it wasn't like the days where you got contracts, you know, if you, you drew money or didn't. There was a lot of lucky guys. I'm not going to name anybody, but there was some lucky guys getting some big contracts that didn't know diddly squat in the 90s. <laughs> and they invented the clothesline. By 1995, I was so sick of seeing the clothesline, I couldn't take it. Now, 2022, every match there's a guy, there's 10 clotheslines or more, missing a clothesline over the guy's head. You give a guy a clothesline, he pops up before you can turn around and give him another one. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, yeah, where's the razor blade? Ah. <laughs> I know how you feel. Still going, yeah. <laughs> It's, it's gone a little bit too far in that direction as far as I'm concerned uh, with today's program. Yeah, I mean, I see matches where people get kicked full force in the face over and over again, need in the face, and they kick out at one. I just, it's just gone a little bit uh, too yeah. far. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's too much and everything's the same. And I'd like to change it if I could, but I think it's evolved into something that, there's some, there's some things I'd like to change about it. And we'll see what happens. I mean, I live eight miles from the performance center where they teach the new guys NXT's film there. And I was sticking my nose in helping a couple of people before the COVID crap, but that was like two years ago. And then it got weird. So I, I haven't been back since that, but things are starting to open up and change now. And I've been watching it and we'll see what happens, but it's been going on like for nine, 10 years the same way. And I think people are dying to see a change. They want to see it more like a sport and less like a bunch of circus stunts. It's like you <laughs> yeah. said, I mean, somebody gets punched 10 times in the corner. You'd think if the guy moved away, he'd fall on his face and be knocked out. But instead the guy grabs him, throws him into the other corner, but he reverses the guy. <laughs> and then the guy runs into a foot. So the 10 punches meant nothing. Yeah, you know there, and it's uh, it's really interesting because you you've got amazing athletes. I mean, some of these guys on TV, I mean, they're a little smaller than on my day. A lot of them, most of them, but they're amazing athletes. The stuff they can do with the band, I mean, it's amazing, and it's also some dangerous stuff. They're falling off the top of ladders through metal chairs and tables and. <laughs> I'm glad all that stuff, you know, uh, came about after I was out of the ring <laughs> doing the broadcasting. <laughs> it's dangerous stuff they're doing, you know. It is. It's a little left the top. Uh, <laughs> uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about uh, was Scott Hall, because he's my, he's my favorite pro wrestler of all time. Scott Hall is my number one. Um, and I know you and Scott were tight for many years going back to your time in AWA. Um, could you tell me a little bit about your relationship with Scott over the years? Well, Scott was a, he was an interesting character and he was a good guy, very smart, had a knack for wrestling. When, 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 <laughs> when I first met him, I wrestled him. It was in Winnipeg, Canada. And the AWA was running some show in Winnipeg and I was there and I'm going, I think, I'm trying to think who ran it, Wally Carbo, one of the promoters with the AWA. And I said, who am I wrestling tonight? Who's this Scott Hall guy? And the Wally said, oh, it's a new guy we got coming in. It's a new guy. And at that time, up down the hallway, Scott was walking across the hallway. 
And Wally went, oh, yeah, there he is. That's the guy. And I looked over and I went, oh, my God. Here's a new guy, six foot six, 280 pounds. Probably going to, you know, clobber the hell out of me. He doesn't know what the hell he's doing yet. And I wound up having my, you know, I think his first match, maybe, you know, in a arena up there. But then um, he was very respectful because I helped him out with psychology. And he was smart enough to really create a hell of a character that really, you know, and played on, a, you know, making the, the bad guy a good guy. You know, people liking the bad guy and the Razor Ramon thing. And <laughs> he, you know, he was a sharp guy. And, and uh, I know his kids started training Cody at the same time one of my kids wanted to start. So they both start training together at the school. And uh, unfortunately, my kid came to me a little too late. He was already like 31 and wasn't super big. If he would have came to me at 21, you know, could have got him bigger with the Bruno workout and had him. Mm -hmm. And but then Cody, but then wrestling was changing. And I'm thinking, God, I don't know if I want my kid to break his neck and get his stuff these guys are starting to do, you know. <laughs> and Cody went off to Japan, Scott's kid, and broke his neck. Right. You know, I mean, so, it, it, you know, but then Tim wound up getting a regular job, and he's doing okay. And I think he still wrestles on a weekend here and there, but not much. But I'd rather have him, especially nowadays with his signs. And now he's 40. Just keep the real job, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Absolutely. And continue on with talking about Scott. Um, you know, so you, you met him all the way back then. And he, obviously, he's very respectful. You had one of his first matches. I guess you're kind of a, a bit of a mentor for him. Uh, how, how meaningful is it when you work with him at, you know, sold out 1998? You get to actually wrestle him on a pay-per-view at the height of, of, of popularity yeah. for wrestling. So that must have been pretty cool. Well, you, yeah, you know, it was exciting because, again, it was something I didn't plan. But as the New World Order started, me and Shivani were sitting at a table that was next to the ring, you know, doing, you know, at the beginning. And Scott was in there having a match with somebody, beat up somebody, and then they went to a commercial break. And Scott came over to the rope during the commercial break, looking right down at where me and Tony were sitting. And he took his toothpick and threw it at me. <laughs> and I threw the headsets off and I stood up. <laughs> and when I did, the arena, they blew the roof off the place. <laughs> I mean, the crowd popped so loud that I, I was like stunned for a second. And I looked at Scott and he was stunned for a second. Because we didn't expect the crowd to explode. And I knew at the time, and so did Scott, you know, that, hey, the fans want to see this. And the fans want to see it, we had to give it to them. And then I switched some other things to stall it, to build it up a little more, because Eric, it was getting so hot, Eric wanted to get involved. So then I arranged it and programmed things where Eric got involved and then I wrestled Eric to save Nitro from the New World Order. And then the next match, it was me and Scott Hall. And actually, I'm kind of proud of that because th those two pay-per-views were the two biggest buy rates WCW ever did. Wow. So I, was proud of my, I was proud of myself. But the fans wanted to see it. And it, 
God bless them. They they were hot for it. I, I remember watching and I remember every time there was something to do with you and Scott or something to do with you and the NWO, people wanted to see the living legend do his thing. So that, I, I found yeah. it very exciting as a fan. <laughs> me too. It caught me off guard, but I, it was a thrill. That's really I cool. I love it. Wrestling fans are the greatest fans of all. Absolutely, Larry. Uh, one question I had for you was... Uh, because I was doing my research about your time in WCW, and I will talk about some other things in your career very soon, but uh, how did it come to be that you would end up leaving in WCW in 2000? I'm assuming you weren't there for the final Nitro? No, I wasn't there. In fact, it, it might have went on maybe close to a year after I was gone, but it was to that point where Ted Turner sold out. They knew they were canceling it, and I had a big contract. Bobby Heenan had a big contract, some other guys. And then it, it got to the point where the contracts were up, but the, the, the new WCW, you know, Time Warner, they wouldn't renew the contracts because they didn't want to pay no more big money because they know they were shutting down. So it was just a matter of basically them not re-signing me and Bobby Heenan and some other guys, we all left, I think Eric left too you know, at the same time, because they didn't want us there anymore because they were going to be shutting, you know, canceling the show. It was it was sad watching the death. I mean, I watched a little bit of it, and then I'm watching it. And, and we had the guy, we had a new guy coming up that people were, Goldberg. I mean, they were chanting Larry, Larry, and then Goldberg. We had Goldberg, and I'm watching it. And the people are chanting Goldberg going nuts. And who winds up to be the heavyweight champion of the world? The stupid idiot writer. <laughs> Vince Russo. I wanted to shoot myself in the head. I turned <laughs> off the TV. And I knew it was going to be a sad death after that until they canceled the show. But that's really too bad because... If Ted didn't sell out or sell more than 51%, because Ted was a big wrestling fan. Plus, he knew wrestling always got him ratings. Wrestling was the show yeah. that when TBS first started on UHF a little bit, that was the show that gave him ratings to build his massive empire. Absolutely. It's 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 crazy because Nitro did TNT's biggest ratings, Thunder did TBS's biggest ratings, and still yeah. they wanted to get rid of it. Um well, how did you yeah. actually feel when uh -oh. you, <laughs> how did you feel when you, you found out that the WWF bought WCW in the end? When you found that out, what were your thoughts? Well, I mean it didn't surprise me. Because if I was Vince, I would have done the same thing, especially with the deal they got. I mean, these morons at Time <laughs> Warner, they had no idea what they had. And I think Vince bought WCW for like two and a half million dollars or something. And that included not just WCW, that included like 20 years or so of all the TBS shows from the you know, 70s and the 80s. I mean, I mean, it was like a giveaway. It was like, good for Vince, great idea. You know, now he owns all that history and 
God, you got all the shows you could have made for like hardly no money because you had all the footage filmed, you know. But but uh, I tell you what, I never ever watched CNN just out of, I, I, for what they did to TBS and WCW. I can't stand them. I understand. Dumb. Um, I understand. Uh, th there were rumors in 2001 uh, that you were going to replace Jerry Lawler on commentary for Monday Night Raw when he left. Uh, are there any truth to those rumors? Did you reach out to them? You know, because uh, for me, that would have been a pretty cool duo hearing you and Jim Ross on the air together. Well, you know what? I, I didn't hear nothing about Raw, but they... Jim did call me once and asked me if I'd be interested in, in commentating over uh, SmackDown Thursday. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because when SmackDown was starting and said something about, uh, you know, Kevin Dunn maybe wanting to have me come down and do a tryout. I said, tryout? I've just been doing it for 10 years. You have to see a tryout. Anyway. <laughs> so, but then for some reason... I, I don't know what the reason is, but for some reason it just didn't happen. And then when WC, I wanted to try another dream at, at 51 years old now. I came down, I moved to Florida, and I started playing golf on the professional mini tours, the senior professional mini tours all around. And in Florida, you could play all year round, you know. So I was down here for a year and a half or so playing golf on the and I was like, I did good, but I was three strokes, not good enough to win, you know, money to make it worth right. it. Because that was like a job. I mean, you travel your butt off to some town, then you're up at 6.30 in the morning for a 7.30 tea time and winds blow and you hit one bad shot, you might as well get in your car and go home. <laughs> the guys out there were old pros golfing for 30 years. Well, I was wrestling for 30 years. The best game I ever turned in was a 67. So that was my best. But, you know, it's par of 72. Usually I'd be, you know, 72, 71, 70, 73. I mean, it's, it's rarely, you know, 74. But mostly around scratch or one or two under, you know, one over. 67 was my best. But some of the pros out there, if they had a 67, they're mad. They had a bad day. <laughs> Excellent, Larry. Uh, I was well, just going to say, then I was in Orlando. So it worked out to where I think it was uh, the Jarrett still owned it before Dixie bought it Impact. And they started filming at Universal or something. So I wound up doing some stuff with them because they were right down the street from where I lived. And and I got in the parks for free and can hit all the rides. Uh, and that was a fun time. <laughs> That's cool, Larry. Um, one thing I want to ask you about, uh, you know, I don't like to, you know, go down a, a road where which is kind of negative or anything like that. But the, the one, one question I want to ask about Chris Jericho was, do you still have heat with him? And if he invited you to go on his podcast, would you talk to him? No, oh, Chris? Oh, yeah, I got nothing against Chris. I mean, yeah, I mean, Chris, uh, yeah, he's still, what, he's on um, AEW, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, he's still going, and yeah, I mean, he's been around a while, but he's still got a little time left and did a good job. I enjoyed watching him uh, with, oh, you made the list. I mean, it was kind of clever. <laughs> oh, oh, Chris did, you know, I got nothing against Chris, you know, he's he's still out there trucking, and 
don't know for how much longer, but he's still out there trucking. Yeah, fair enough. Um, okay, now it's finally time for me to to take this from where we're talking about WCW and the late 90s, early 2000s. I'm going all the way back to the 70s and the 80s. I need to ask oh. you about Bruno um, because I love Bruno. I watch his interviews. I think he tells some amazing stories. I think he's just a hell of a guy. Uh, uh, I know Bruno was involved in training you, but when you actually got to work with him in the ring in front of crowds between 1974 and 1984, were there any unspoken lessons you learned just from the work? Well, well, the, the work was completely different. It was night and day compared to what it is today. I mean, you didn't have, you know, Bruno running across the ring and jumping over and doing a flip <laughs> into three guys waiting to catch him. I mean, no one, you know, no one did that. So everybody worked kind of their character. You know, bad guys cheated, the good guys didn't. Bruno was really the most truly loved wrestler I, I, ever in the business. I mean, Carl, if you were there at some of these shows, I mean, when Bruno was in the ring wrestling a guy like 300-pound Koloff or George Steele or 300-pound Tanaka and Bruno was bleeding and fell down on the mat, people in the audience had heart attacks. You'd see the EMTs in beds, you know, going up the aisles of the arenas. And sometimes there were some people that died from a heart attack during a Bruno match. It was a little bit of a joke, like, Bruno, you're killing off our audience. <laughs> but when Bruno talked, what the people got was, he that's what he really was. He was a very humble guy. He was a very thankful guy, you know, for being here and being accepted because, you know, his family escaped from the Nazis during World War II, came across his mother with the two kids. His mother was shot in the leg trying to escape. And finally, when Bruno and his mother and brother made it to the States, Bruno was suffering from severe malnutrition. You know, and that's what kind of led later on down to some heart valve, you know, things when his late 70s and stuff. But he was a, a really, truly humble guy, and people could feel that. And they truly loved him. It wasn't like some guy pretending to be a good guy. He really was a good guy, and people could feel it, and they knew it. He was truly the most loved wrestler it's ever going to be. And, you oh, know, what so. I learned from Bruno was uh, people have to believe in your character. And that's why after I turned on him and went other places and was the most hated, you know, guy for a while, I learned that how to do things different, whether it was interviews or just the way I walked out and, the way I'd go to wrestle, but then step out of the ring because no one else was doing that. And later on down the road, guys would say, oh, Zabisco invented stalling. There was no such thing as stalling. It was just pissing off the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, so, so I, I did it to the point in a way where I learned that, again, no matter what the people thought about wrestling, because now you get into the 80s and stuff where people are getting a little smarter but no matter what they thought of wrestling, they believed Larry Zabisco was a super a-hole in real <laughs> life. 
So I did my job good. You did. And I heard, uh, well, actually, in my research, I read that at one point, is it true that you were stabbed in the ass with a fork? Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, back then in the 80s, people, you know, like, like they really loved Bruno, they really hated me. And we'd be in arenas and, and, and there'd be riots that would break out, especially if I cheated and won the match, you know, and and it wasn't like today where there's big barriers all set up and any audiences that, you know, smart and a different mindset. But back then I was in a match with Putsky and he was, me and him were wrestling and so there was some, one guy, everybody hated me, but one guy for some reason hated Putsky. And he was yelling things like, hey, Putsky, your mother's really ugly. You know, <laughs> Putsky kept wrestling and didn't do anything. Then the guys made another comment about, hey, Putsky, you know, I slept with your sister. Ah, you know, <laughs> something stupid. Putsky didn't care, right? He just, we kept wrestling. Then the guy says, hey, Putsky, you're short. So Putsky <laughs> loses his mind, jumps out of the ring, and starts punching this fan in the front row. And a couple security guys stop him. And they, yeah, so he's coming back in the ring. And I said to myself, well, this is the perfect time to really, you know, get the fans. So when Putsky was coming back in the ring, I gave him a low blow and the ref wasn't looking and pinned him one, two, three, and there was a riot that broke out. People were jumping in the ring trying to get me and I jumped out the other side of the ring trying to get back to the dressing room. And one of the secrets was during a riot, if you act crazy, you're like, the people you know, have second thoughts of coming at you because they don't know what's going on. That's not normal. And I'm going down and all of a sudden I, I feel, boom, this thing hits me on top of the head. And I turned around to hit somebody, you know, that's hit me with something. And it was like an 80 year old guy that hit me on top of the head with one of his crutches. <laughs> and after he hit me, he lost his balance and fell over on the floor. So I, I didn't do that. I just started acting crazy and going back to the dressing room. And then all of a sudden, it felt like someone kicked me in the butt. And I went, oh, yeah, and I turned around and the cops grabbed, you know, some guy. And I made it back to the dressing room and Arnold Scullin sitting there playing cribbage with Andre. And he said, hey, how'd it go? It sounded good. And they went, yeah, no, it was a good match. People went nuts. And, and then I, I said, someone kicked me. It felt like it gave me a good Charlie horse. And I put my hand back by my butt. And I felt this thing and I... I pulled it out and it was a knife blade about this long. Oh was, I don't know if you ever saw them, but the Japanese had like these wooden knives. They were skinny and one piece of the wood, you know, the, the blade would go in the longer piece of wood, you know. So it wasn't like a Bowie knife, you know, but when I turned to hit the guy, I broke the blade off in my ass. <laughs> the scariest shot was going to the emergency room to get a tetanus shot. Because, <laughs> you know, you didn't know what uh, infection you were going to get. But, yeah, I got stabbed at, I got shot at, my cars were smashed. I used to have to hide in people's trunks and be driven into the arena in someone's trunks so they wouldn't know <laughs> I was there. Good old days. <laughs> Good old days. What, what, a, yeah. what a life you've lived, Larry. It's, uh, no one it was a life. 
No one who's working in professional wrestling these days will have any idea what a heel from the 70s and 80s had to go through. It's unbelievable. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. Um. Well, I will. You know, and it's funny because sometimes, like when I went to the PC and when I tell some of the stories and some about some of the other guys, the young guys starting today, would they, they look at me and go, really? That really happened? I mean, they don't get it. It's so different, you know. It's funny. Yeah, it really, yeah, that's how it was. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really weird because, like, obviously I have, uh, I've spent the last, well, since, what, 1996, 97, uh, watching a lot of, of, of wrestling from the history of, of wrestling, not just stuff from today, but I've, I've gone all the way back to, to very early uh, days, uh, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s. Uh, and one thing that I just feel like, and, I, and I'm kind of, getting away from my line of questioning here is I feel like today's fan, the uh, diehard fan just wants to see a great match between two guys. And there's just, it's just a great wrestling match. Whereas I kind of feel like it's supposed to be about hating one person and, and, and really having the beloved baby face on the other side, good versus evil. Uh, well, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, I just feel like that today's fan, the diehard fan, doesn't really understand that this is actually what it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be like we're all friends and we're just having a great wrestling match here where you're going to do a dive and I'm going to stand there for 10 seconds waiting to catch you. Waiting uh, to catch you. <laughs> well, that's what it is. And, you know, professional wrestling, that's what the stars were. It starred good versus evil. And it was like the original unreal reality show but it was presented as a you know tremendous sporting event but that sporting event thing is what's missing that i'd like to put back in because like you said everybody's doing the same stuff they're all athletic they're all catching each other and all i mean and it's a lot of action and running and dangerous things but i watch some of these matches or some of the new guys coming up and i, I don't know who the good guy and the bad guy is because they're all doing the same stuff. <coughs> no one's cheating, really. You know, they're both, every match starts out, they go to tie up and they both start punching each other and punching each other and then hit the rope and leave. For, I don't know, who's the bad guy? <laughs> the thing that drives me the most crazy, Larry, is uh, when I can see that they're cooperating with one another in the ring. I, I don't want to be able to spot it. I've watched a lot of wrestling, but... I want, I still want that suspense of, of disbelief. You know, I still want to well, be every, sold. Everybody does it. And that's why we watch TV, you know, murder mysteries, action movies, Jurassic Park, because we want to escape this unnatural reality we live in. And I mean, when you go to the movies to watch like, like Jurassic Park, I took my kid, you buy the ticket. You don't want the ticket guy to say, oh, hey, the dinosaurs aren't real. It's a computer <laughs> animated. So when they go to eat the kids, don't worry about it. You know, nothing to have fun over. Just just watch it. Nothing's real. You don't want to know who the murderer is, you know. So it, it's, yeah, I wish it was back that way again. I think the fans are, that's what I'm saying about the fans. I don't think the rating, I think they could be doing a lot better. I, I talked to a lot of people say, yeah, I watched it a little bit, but I'm already not into it because it's hard to not emotionally into it because they really don't care who wins or. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's not, um, 
well, how, how do I want to explain this? It's not a lot of the time I hear from my friends who were all as big of a fan of wrestling as I was back in 1998, 1999. Uh, they always say it's just, it, it's not the same. It's just not the same as it was. Um, yeah and i think that's why they lost a lot of those fans um (laughs) i wanted to keep talking a little bit about uh bruno but uh i wanted to kind of talk about david uh david sammartino and 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 your relationship with him and working with him over the years well i worked with him a little bit david's career didn't last that long and i think david i don't know if it's just an emotional thing he he couldn't couldn't deal with it because being Bruno's son, he had, I mean, Bruno had such a big pair of shoes to fill. And I think when David came along and the way David looked, I mean, he wasn't 280 pound gorilla like Bruno was. And, you know, the fans didn't buy him like he hoped they would. And Dave was good in the ring, but he just couldn't fill his dad's shoes. And I think mentally he, you know, he was disappointed, maybe down on himself and then just kind of disappeared. And then, and then I think too, he was taking some steroids for a while trying to get big because he wasn't that big. Then Bruno found out and got on him, and, but it just, yeah, David. And actually when Bruno retired, it wasn't just David. There was really nobody right then that could fill Bruno's shoes. I mean, Bob Backlund couldn't replace Bruno. You know, Bob Backlund ran out. People would laugh at him, (laughs) the champion, Bob Backlund, because they were used to seeing this gorilla like Bruno plus bad guys who were 300 pounds like George Steele and Koloff and Tanaka and Kowalski and Monson, you know, the different. uh, But it was a hard pair of fills, you know, shoes to fill. And then it was a while before some characters came along that could do that. Like Hogan was a, a different era started, but then Hogan came along and you had the era of the characters. And no one really had a name. Everybody was a the, the Hulk, the macho man, the hot rod, the super fly, the big boss man, you know, <laughs> some costume. But then the merchandise started, I mean, yeah, the whole era in the business, you know, changed. Absolutely. Um, and, and to continue on talking a little bit about Bruno, I I remember reading about this back in 2005, and I've always wondered a little bit about it. It was the 27th of August, 2005. It was at Wrestle Reunion in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. You faced Diamond Dallas Page with a provision that uh, if you if you won the match, you would get five minutes alone in the ring with 69-year-old Bruno. Um, uh, can you tell me a little bit about the, I guess it's kind of like the final time that there's a bit of a clash between you and Bruno. I believe after the match, uh, Bruno gets into the ring and and uh, I, I don't know if he puts his hands around your throat, you know, chokes you or, or anything. Do, do you remember this uh, moment in time? You know what? I vaguely remember being in that thing with Valley Forge with Diamond Dallas and Bruno outside the ring. I mean, it's a vague memory. I remember it. And I was like mad because Diamond was kind of clumsy and he did some move. And when he landed on my ankle, I thought he broke my ankle, you idiot. But 
I don't really remember what happened at the end because, you know, I mean, me and Bruno didn't start wrestling, I don't think. I'm, I'm really not sure. That's okay. From what I've read, DDP hit you with a diamond cutter, but then he allowed, he, he pulled you over the top of him and you got the pin despite the fact that he could have beaten you just so it could go down to you versus Bruno. And all I read oh, was did. that Bruno came to him and throttled him. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember any of that, Carl. There's so many things like over 50 years of stuff. I remember being there with Diamond Dallas and the Bruno thing, and but I don't remember the nitty-gritty details. <laughs> That's God, okay, so Larry. Living that hell of a life you talked about. It was a uh, it was a wild life. Absolutely, Larry. And I completely understand that you, you won't be able to remember every every single little thing that happened because you've done so many things. So I just don't think it's possible for anyone to remember every single thing. So it's totally cool. Not after 50 years, no. Yeah. No. 10,000 matches. <laughs> um, to, to put a bow on my questions about uh, Bruno, um, I just want to know, you know, if you don't want to uh, tell me that's okay, but uh, do you remember your last conversation with him? God, you know, not exactly the last conversation. I remember, I mean, the biggest honor, you know, Bruno inducted me into the Hall of Fame. And me and Bruno would talk, but it was... It, it wasn't really too much of a talking because Bruno at that age was basically retired and 80 something and would sit home. And a lot of what we talked about was he was worried about his wife, Carol, because he was always telling me like, yeah, I got to take Carol to the doctor tomorrow because Carol's health wasn't good. So, you know, but we'd always keep in touch. And I was always feeling bad and worried about Carol, you know, getting taken off to the hospital and this and that. And then one time I called and left a message and week went by, I didn't hear nothing. And I called again and nothing happened. I'm going, I wonder if something happened to Carol. But it was Bruno that wound up, that was in the hospital that long and, and wound up, you know, dying. And I went to the funeral in Pittsburgh and Vince and Stephanie were there. That was cool of them to be there. And you know, a bunch of other people, Dominic. And you want to hear a weird story that gave me goosebumps? Sure. I mean, when you talk about things that are meant to be like life is a dream and you got control over it or something. There was this little church, Catholic school church, St. Sebastian in, in the North Hills of Pittsburgh. My parents, I went there in eighth grade, and Bruno's kids went there in St. Sebastian's. And when I was 13 years old, like in eighth grade or something, my parents dragged, you know, me and my brother and sister off to church. So I'm sitting there in the pew, and I'm, I look over and I see this gigantic head with this big broken nose and these ears, and I'm going, my God, I'm, I'm sitting next to Bruno. I mean, he was my hero, you know, when I moved to Pittsburgh and saw wrestling a couple of years before. And I couldn't believe it. I was sitting next to Bruno in this pew in St. Sebastian's, this little church, the first time I ever met him. And the weird coincidence that gives me the goosebumps is 
when I went to his funeral, his casket was in the exact same little church, St. Sebastian, and I'm sitting in the pew, almost by the same position I was 50 years before. So the first place I ever met him, got his autograph at 13, 50 years later, was the exact same place I'd see him for the last time in wow. the casket. It was like the strangest, co it was beyond coincidence. It that's, was beyond coincidence. That's like something out of a film. <laughs> that really yes, is. Yes, Twilight Zone or something. <laughs> wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's a really cool story to hear. Yeah, I got goosebumps thinking about it. You know. <laughs> that's very, cool. Very... Um, <laughs> so I want to ask you, uh, do, do you know when your final match was, uh, your final performance in the ring? And, and going into that, did you know it was going to be the last one at the time? You know, probably not really, because the last ones, you know, with WCW were the biggies. Yeah. And then I did a couple. I didn't know other ones were going to start. I mean, I didn't realize there's going to be, you know, 5,000 indies <laughs> popping up all over the, the country. And then I wound up doing a couple of matches, I think, with Impact when the Jarrett's had it and just started. And, Remember AJ Styles just starting? I had a, I had a hell of a match with young AJ when he first started. Even some talk about maybe me being his manager because he was from around Georgia there. But that never happened. And, it, and then after that, I really didn't think of wrestling. I was doing the pro golf, but then I'd be getting calls, you know, like from all these indie shows, which I didn't plan on. And I didn't even know where are you at? Maine? You know, I mean, so I, it was hard to plan like this is my last match because I didn't know. And when I didn't think about having another match, I get a call from somebody, you know, to fly up to Wisconsin and have a match with somebody. Yeah, so it went on for some of you. You know how it is with the indie thing now. They're everywhere. <laughs> so now no more in the ring. I fly out. I'm, I love meeting the fans, signing autographs. But the trunks and boots are burnt. Burnt, sold, gone, buried, done. <laughs> Fair enough, Larry. I um, I, I think in my research, I've read that the last match that you had, uh, it could be wrong, though, was 2015. So it's not that long ago, uh, really, when you think about it. It could have uh, been. I mean, I did one tag match with my kid. And yeah. Made sure that he was in there most of the time himself because I wasn't getting <laughs> hurt. But yeah. I mean, that might have been it, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I wanted to talk about the WWE Hall of Fame. We're getting very close to the end of the interview here, Larry. Uh, but, uh, you know, time flies when you're having fun. We are. I am having so much fun. And uh, to me, I don't even feel like uh, it's been, it's nearly one o'clock in the morning. So I'm, I'm, I'm so yeah. excited <laughs> from this conversation. But uh, the Hall of Fame, meeting uh, Vince McMahon. I don't know if you'd seen him in, in many years at that point when you, when you finally arrived for the Hall of Fame. Uh, what was that first meeting with Vince like after all that time? You know, it was very nostalgic. It was a very nostalgic, emotionally in a good way meeting because after the 1980, 81 thing with Bruno and I was so hot as the bad guy, but if I would have stayed in the WWF much longer, 
I would have started going down, you know, Bruno retired again. So what I did was I was so exhausted too from that. I took a couple months off and then Bruno got me booked with, I think, Baba. You know, I went to Japan for a month or so, came back, took a month off. Then I went back to Japan and some other things. And that was an interesting time because the new era was starting. Unfortunately, Vince McMahon Sr. passed away and Vince Jr. took over. But Vince, the young promoter, was the first promoter to see the new era coming of cable systems and nationwide. The territories were about to you know, be a thing of the past. But the other promoters, Vern, the old school guy, the Crockett's, they had their promoters you know, in their areas. They were millionaires. They didn't even think of wanting to change anything because they were fine and set. And, but then all of a sudden, you know, Hulk Hogan, Jesse the Body, Bobby Heenan, Mean Gene Okerlund, probably some other guy, you know, went from the AWA to the WWF and then Piper and Macho and Steamboat and some other guys probably went from the NWA to the WWF. And this is the time when I kind of left and took a break so I wouldn't get burnt out. So, and then that kind of set a panic off with the other two promotions because they're going, hey, all our stars are leaving. And then, you know, that's when the contracts were kind of starting so the guys couldn't leave. And the, the opportunity that left me was in good shape. And that's one of the reasons I never went back with the WWE was because they had all the top guys from the territories. So the AWA needed a top guy like me. Then the NWA needed a tough guy like me. So I wound up going back and forth, you know, go back, work with the Ganyas or Bachwinkle. Then I'd go NWA, work with Dusty, do something. Then I'd go back with the AWA and win the belt. And then I'd come back to NWA, which became WCW. So it, it just mattered something that wasn't planned, but it just happened. And WWE had all their top guys, and I became one of the top guys of the other thing, which became WCW. I really hadn't seen Vince like in probably almost 30 years. Mm. But when I saw him, you know, I think it was in California where I went into the Hall of Fame. Yeah, it was it was a big hug. It was a, it was a very nostalgic reunion. It was very nice, very nostalgic. Uh, the WWE has become a great company. But seeing Vince too in person brought back memories of when I was first starting as a kid. I was 21, 22, and Vince, I think, started a few years before me. So we remembered all this nostalgia from when we were very young and just starting together. It was it was a very good reunion. It was it was really it was very nostalgic. Oh, that's great to hear, Larry. I've always wondered what that uh, meeting would have been like. Uh considering how long it had been since you you had seen him uh but larry we're getting right to the end of the interview here i've got one final oh, segment. God, I'm to charge you more. <laughs> i've got one final segment on this show it's just about learning some of your favorite things in life uh i, I ask a question quick fire questions for quick fire answers uh the first question is me? <laughs> <laughs> the first question is who is your favorite pro wrestler of all time bruno who is your favorite opponent of all time? Bruno. <laughs> uh, what is the favorite match that you've ever performed in? 
Shea Stadium with Bruno. <laughs> uh, I thought I thought as much. Uh, getting away from wrestling now, though, uh, do you have a favorite book? You know what? I never read books. <laughs> I never had to pay. I'm a great listener. When the computers came out years ago with like YouTube and you could like listen to experts talk about things. I'm a great listener, but I don't have the patience to just sit there and sit there and read. But I was a great uh, listener and I did a lot of research on ancient mythology, which really captivated me, the reality of life, how the planets formed, how we formed and how we're everlasting eternal beings. This body we're in is just a temporary vehicle in this dimension of mass. I mean, death is nothing to worry about. We, we come here on a temporary basis, the body does its thing, and then we go back to our natural form of electromagnetic light plasma energy. And there's a, the Big Bang, like the two electromagnetic forces come together, just like we have here, the, you know, the, and the opposites to trap. You got the feminine nature and you got the masculine nature. The feminine is the creative nature. The masculine's the provider and the protector. And when they come together at such an ecstasy, we create more of ourselves. You know, in this dimension, we call it babies. But in our natural form, which right now we're in the center of this galaxy energy. Anyway, I, that's another two-hour show. But we're... <laughs> We're eternal beings, we're, we're, we're creators, we're all a piece of God, so-called God, we're all a piece of all energy. Well, thank so. you for sharing that, Larry. And uh, if you don't have a favorite book, I'll just say, let, uh, uh, plug out there for Adventures in Larry Land. Uh, check it out. Yeah, that's, that's my favorite, because I get a royalty, I think. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, favorite TV show of all time? You know what I'm hooked on? I'm hooked on shows I didn't get to see much when I was a kid. Because there was shows like I didn't see the, like Saturday Night Lives and some other stuff because I was always on the road doing a, a wrestling show. I didn't see shows. Of course. Now I'm, I'm hooked on these old murder mysteries like Perry Mason. Perry Mason's made hundreds of shows and movies. I'm into like, these murder mystery shows like Perry Mason, old Charlie Chan movies. Old Sherlock Holmes movies with, uh, you know, Basil Rathbone and and stuff. So I'm into all the old like black and white shows that, I, yeah, I've never seen before. So that's what I'm into. I'm up till two in the morning watching Perry Mason. I record him. I record everything so I can fast forward to commercials. <laughs> Very cool, Larry. Very cool. Uh, do you have a favorite film of all time? And, you know, there's a few of them. I mean, I can watch, you know, stuff like A Mad, Mad, Mad World was an outrageously funny film. I mean, like some murder mysteries. I've got some movies recorded now. The, the Thin Man, you know, murder mystery series was good. Uh, movie like Idiocracy was a, a funny as hell movie. The Pineapple Express was a funny as hell movie. <laughs> yeah. You know, and there's some other ones if I think about it. But, um, oh, God, I mean, there's probably more if I think about it, but. This is some, you know, this is some good, this is some good, good answers there, I'd say, Larry. Uh, well, uh, thank you. I'm glad I passed the test. 
<laughs> uh, Larry, do you have a favorite band or musical artist? You know what? I must have 150 CDs that are 30 years old. And the only time I listen to music is when I'm in my car. But all my CDs kind of stop in the 80s somewhere. They're all Bob Seger, Jimi <laughs> Hendrix, Moody Blues, Pink Floyd. I mean, I got some Frank Sinatra. I got a couple of Willie Nelsons. I got some B.B. King. I like the blues sometimes. But the, I, like the new music, the 90s, it took time. I, I never listened to any of that. I'm always, you know, putting them in the oldies. Yeah, well, just like wrestling, uh, just like wrestling, old school is best school, I think. Uh, <laughs> uh, Larry, do you have a favorite food? Uh, well, you know, there's some things I like. I, mean, I love a pepperoni pizza. Very nice. I like that. You know, I, I, I like to, for some reason, I like pepperoni pizza because I don't cook anything. So everything I eat, I put in the oven, you know, or microwave it. But, uh, and then like king crab legs, you peel them open and the white meat comes out and you dip it in the melted butter. Yeah, very I nice. I like that. Yeah, and then the, it's hard to beat a good, you know, piece of filet mignon with the A1 sauce, you know. I'm basically a meat and potatoes kind of guy. And for breakfast, you know, eggs and double bacon. Yeah, fantastic choices. I, I, I'm i the exact same. Uh, do you have a favorite place to eat on the road? Well, you know what, on the road, I mean, I'm really not on the road much anymore, but in the old days, there really wasn't that many places around like today. Plus after the show, 10, 11 o'clock, you're on the road. The only places that were open might be a Denny's or a Waffle House because <laughs> everything else was closed after dinner, but the Denny's and the Waffle House, hey, there's a Waffle House, it's midnight, let's go there, we'll go to the Waffle House. Because <laughs> yeah, there wasn't that many options back on the road days. So you of took course. what you got. <laughs> of course, and Waffle House is one of the most popular answers for that question on the show. Uh, not many to go here, Larry. Three more questions. Do you have a favorite beverage? Larry Zabisco is thirsty. What does he want to drink? You know what? For years, I was a Pepsi guy with real sugar. But then a couple of years ago or so, I said, you know, I'm getting a little older. We'll cut back on the sugar and the sodas. So what I drink now is health water. I'll get like a Pepsi bottle and then I'll put a pack of electrolytes in it and then get health water and fill it. So during the day I, I drink like health water because we're 70% water and I don't want to keep putting in chemicals and sugars at my age. So I'm kind of, you know, doing more healthy stuff now that I'm getting older. That's good, Larry. Uh, the, the second last one here, Larry, you see a good looking lady you know, what's your favorite female attribute or body part? You know what? The first thing that, that gets me is their face. They've got to have a really, a beautiful face. If they don't have a beautiful face, you know, next. <laughs> you know, but the face is the first thing that would attract me, a beautiful face. Very nice, Larry. This yeah, is a big class. Yeah, I mean, if you're a good-looking woman and have a beautiful face. If you, if you have a beautiful face, the body usually follows pretty close. <laughs> Definitely, Larry. And the last one here, Larry, I don't think you've said one curse word. 
during this interview, but do you have a favorite curse word? God, I don't, uh, some ring the doorbell, damn it. <laughs> I guess maybe it's, um, maybe it's damn it or shit. I don't know, but it's nothing drastic. <laughs> Fair yeah. enough, Larry. Well, thank you so much for your time uh, being interviewed by me here on the Insider's Edge podcast. It's really meant a lot to me. And as I said to Scott Hudson, it's like uh, you were kind of like one of the voices of my like childhood and teenage years. Along with well, Scott, thanks, those voices bro. were a real big part of my fandom in pro wrestling. So uh, to have the chance to talk to you here today really means a lot to me, Larry. So thank uh, you so much. Well, Carl, thank you. It makes me feel good that I make you feel good. So thank you very much and watch out for them uh, kangaroos down under. <laughs> thank you, Larry. I always wanted to go to Australia. I got as close as Samoa and Wrestle, but never made it to Australia. Damn, Larry. Well, hopefully one day I'll be over there in Florida visiting some of my uh, new friends that I've made through the uh, podcast. And uh, hopefully I'll get to run into you at a convention sometime. Well, let me know. Will do. Right, thank you, brother. Don't thank you, Larry. To, I hope all your dreams come true, too. Thank you, Larry. Have a good day, my friend. Thank you. You too, buddy. <laughs>